Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, we've made terrible policy choices over the past 20 years, but choosing to abandon the system uh, to me feels very counterproductive. We'll keep building on Bitcoin until we see something better from the government. I, especially for the folks in living in authoritarian regimes, I don't know what else you'd want them to do. I mean, it's really their only hope. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined uh, by two very special guests. Really excited for this episode, uh, Mr. Mike Green um, and Alex Gladstein. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. It's great to be here, thanks, Michael. Thanks. thanks for having us. Awesome. So look, let's just get into it. Uh, I this this whole conversation started because I saw this photo uh, on Twitter of the two of you, which, Mike, I was telling you before this. Uh, you know, we got on the podcast really warmed my heart because I know there's a bunch of stuff that you guys disagree on, but it's, I just always love to see people, um, who don't share similar views, but they get together, they kind of respect each other and move the conversation forward. Um, so I guess to just kind of frame what we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be covering kind of the future of the monetary system and kind of the two different paths that we could go down, which is the central bank digital currency path and, uh, the promise that Bitcoin sort of represents. Um, I know when we talk about a subject like this, there are parts that you guys both agree on, uh, and then there are maybe parts that you disagree on as well. So why don't we start with a part of the conversation that I think you guys um, do agree on or views that you both share, uh, which is kind of this idea of the war on cash, uh, basically the surveillance state uh, and why that might be worrisome or something that we should all be paying attention to, uh, whichever one of you kind of wants to jump off first um, in terms of framing that whole situation. Sure. Thank you. Um, look, my, my perspective is colored by my work, my career, helping dissidents living under authoritarian regimes over the last uh, almost 15 years with the Human Rights Foundation, uh, the reality is that in most countries, money, uh, however you want to understand it, is used to control people, not necessarily to liberate them. Um, and this, this kind of uh, goes stride for stride with uh, communications and the way that governments have intercepted and, and controlled uh, th not, not just speech and text, but also increasingly even even the idea of thought uh, in, 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 let's say, the world's largest country in China. Uh, what we have here is um, a society that's uh, digitizing. And as it digitizes, we, we went from basically all of our communications and transactions being by their very nature private uh, to all of our communications and transactions by their very nature being uh, part of a surveillance machine. And the part that concerns me here is not necessarily uh, speech, which where I feel like the cultural war over encrypted encrypted messaging is is kind of won, and, and you know even even as of a decade ago, uh, like Michael Hayden, for example, thinks that all Americans should use encryption, and I think generally speaking, we see the value in encrypted messaging for for not just the software that we use, but also just generally our lives. For me, the next question is is with regard to uh, private money and private transactions. And, and that culture war is just getting started. Um, and I think that we're going to we're gonna see some of the same arguments used against private money that we saw used against private speech. Uh, if you look at the early 90s, of course, the Clinton administration, uh, but, you know, our current president, Biden, was very against this idea of PGP or the ability of two citizens to use a PC uh, to communicate privately with one another. They really threw the book at Phil Zimmerman and all the other cypherpunk activists. They ended up losing, thankfully, 
and you know what? Uh, encryption ended up powering the open web and, and Silicon Valley and a lot of these big apps we use today. So it was great to see encryption win there. But when it comes to money, uh, we're, we're kind of at the beginning of this, again, this big ma macro trend where increasingly the transactions that we make are not bare instrument uh, transactions anymore. They are either shifting entries on a digital ledger um, or, you know, perhaps, as you mentioned, with central bank digital currencies, you know, uh, transactions of a, of a direct liability of a central bank. Um, now, what's, what's a little scary is that, uh, you know, even in advanced democracies, it does not appear that our leaders want to necessarily protect these, these rights when it comes to privacy and money. Um, it's obvious that in China and in dictatorships, like the governments are excited to get rid of cash. I mean, in m many countries in the world, cash acts as this like last bastion for privacy. In a lot of countries, places, it, it powers an informal sector. That's very important because it, it's beyond government control. An, an example would be in the West Bank. Most of the transactions there are done in cash, which is really helpful for Palestinians who are worried about the corrupt PA or the Israeli military controlling their lives. Well, you know, in 10 years or so, that won't exist anymore. And paper money is just going to be phased out. It's just the reality. And the big question for all these societies is what takes its place. And I think that some people believe in a world where we can we can make public money properly understood as, as being, you know, liability of the government um, sufficiently private. And then that that's a worthy goal. And I, I believe that's kind of where Mike stands. And, and, you know, for me, I'm just more jaded. And I just don't I just don't see it happening. And that's why I'm excited that there's a an open source alternative in Bitcoin. And I, I, so I would echo a lot of what Alex is saying. I think that the importance of effectively a bearer bond type instrument like cash or a coin um, is an important measure that preserves anonymity. The importance to me about anonymity is, is it allows people to express their preferences with minimal consideration for their social credit score, the perception of the government, the risk that they're running afoul of uh, particular behaviors. Um, you know, it facilitates all forms of informal transactions at small scale that give voice to a consumer or a producer economy being led from the private sector. Um, the, the difference that I think that I have with Alex, and I think where Alex and I would, would probably split, is the question of, is it feasible to do that within the private sector? And ultimately, what are the implications of countries that have um, a desire and an incentive to encourage growth of the private sector and preservation of property rights, what happens when they face dedicated opponents who are capable of manipulating the language around that and, and exploiting the perceptions that exist while simultaneously using that openness to undermine uh, the uh, status of those economies. So, you know, I think where Alex and I would disagree is, uh, and I'm not sure how much we would actually disagree with this, is that broadly the United States tends to be on aggregate a force for good or has historically been a force for good. It has been relatively less corrupt. It has been relatively more embracing of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, et cetera, than many of the other regimes around the world. And the question is, what is the best way to extend that further, right? I think the concern that I have around the Bitcoin narrative of you can't stop us is actually quite a poor one. 
um, and that it encourages a crackdown that has the risk of destroying many of the features that we value in the U.S. system as it exists today. And at the same time, if we are relatively weakening the U.S. in this equation, that means that we are relatively strengthening the regimes that choose to dispense with this, the Chinas, Russias, etc. Uh, I think that sits at the core of our disagreement in terms of what is the right approach given these constraints. I, th I think before we get into kind of these two different potential future roads that we could walk down, it would be really good for me to understand like a little bit more concretely what we mean when we say, um, you know, issuing the currency as a means of control for governments. When I kind of think about hear you saying that, I kind of think of, okay, well, there's the obvious idea of inflation, right, being a kind of an unlegislated tax. Uh, but there's also kind of... Um, more direct situations like Alex, I know you've written about Afghanistan and kind of the situation over there. And so if you could kind of walk me through Alex, maybe you could kick it off with just when you say currency as a means of control for sovereign, what are all the different levels that you're talking about there? And I know you've written about the Afghanistan situation. So if you want to talk about that as well, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, so sure, we started with privacy. And I think that's probably where Mike and I agree most closely that we need private money in it to keep our democracy alive. And a really good example, of this would be two years ago in Hong Kong, when the protesters started to try to exert their rights to protect their city um they needed in a, in a in an urban environment to use public transportation and they did not want to use their octopus cards which were connected in some cases to their identity so they would go and line up and use cash to buy one-time use transit tickets so that their employers or their university professors wouldn't know that they were protesting and couldn't punish them uh, this is like a really clear neat illustration of of why um private money i believe is very important for democracy um, and not just for some sort of like libertarian utopia. No, no, no. For like any progressive democracy, I think we need private money. Can, can um, we pause for one second? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. I, I just want to make sure that we clarify what you're referring to as privacy, not private money, right? Because Hong Kong I, I, dollars in cash. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, I mean, pseudonymity or anonymity right. in money. Correct. We should be very clear about that as we're going to get into private versus public. Yes. Right. Okay. I just want to make sure. Uh, moving forward, I'll say privacy protecting money. Perfect. To be, to be clear. Um, so privacy protecting money, important for democracy. Now, uh, two things I'll mention before I get into, um, Michael, what you, what you asked for in terms of um, where I see risks. Uh, again, we don't need to get into the track record of the Chinese Communist Party or of Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Cuba. Like, unfortunately, about for 4.3 billion people, like, they live under straightforwardly authoritarian regimes. Um, but for the 4% of us that live in the United States, or for the, you know, let's say 10, 12% of us that live in uh, the U.S. plus Europe, Australia, some of the sort of stronger advanced democracies, um, we should also look at our, what, what our leaders are saying. And I just would, would put, point out that on matters of privacy, their, their track records aren't great. Um, so, you know, a lot of the reason why I, I, I end up working in the Bitcoin space is because the uh, revelations of people like Snowden and other whistleblowers and, and the public speaking and, and presentations by, for example, Christine Lagarde or, you know, whatever it is, the head of the Fed or the head of the Bank of Japan, etc. Like what they're telling us is that basically privacy will be negotiated um, in, in, in monetary constructs moving forward, like in a digital euro or a digital dollar. Um, it, it will be negotiated. That's what they're telling us. Now, maybe it'll be different, but you know, I'm trying to listen to what they're saying, and they seem to be, um, even in these like countries that have property rights and we have liberal protections, we have separation of powers, we have elections, 
again, most of the world, that's just off the table. But, you know, even in these places that, that, that conceivably could have public money that's, that has privacy protections, it doesn't really sound like they're excited to do it. Now, I would, I would also point out that privacy is just one goal of, of what I would hope for in terms of digital, digital cash for the future, for future generations. The, the cypherpunks and, and the early people who built what, what Satoshi Nakamoto later you know, w w would have eventually wrecked Bitcoin on top of was a huge body of work that, that yes, it did 100% focus on quite a bit on privacy. However, it's also important to point out that the risks of central bank digital currencies and of increasing centralized control of money also include other, other problems. Now, those would include social engineering, um, expiration dates on money, negative interest rates, uh, and currency debasement. And this is where, you know, Bitcoin is interesting because it doesn't just protect from surveillance, it also protects from basically monetary manipulation. And that's why people like me kind of see it as not just digital cash, but also digital gold. It helps, it helps protect against both of these kind of big risks. So that's why I'm, for example, I'm not like super into a lot of the privacy coins, let's say, particularly because they lack the digital gold element which I, I do believe will be important um, in the long run. So when we have this risk of central bank digital currencies, I'm not, I'm not simply concerned with the surveillance element. Um, I'm also concerned with the element of, uh, let's say, debasement, or if you prefer devaluation, because we're not talking about coins anymore. <laughs> we're talking about credits. Um, but, you know, and, and the, the doors it opens for social engineering, uh, again, expiration dates on money, blacklist, that sort of thing. So I think this is one of the things that I, I to me is interesting because, you know, while I am also concerned and certainly um, fearful of the dynamics of social engineering as it relates to a public sector, right? Um, almost by definition, you are choosing to elevate one choice and one set of choices relative to anything else, the Cass Sunstein sort of nudge framework, right? There's another issue, though, that's associated with that, which is a general acceptance in terms of what we stand for as a society and what we're trying to do. Right. And so the United States is basically a form of social engineering. What happens if you take people who largely chose to emigrate to a region of the world and provided them with individual property rights, flexibility to oppose government, practice their own religion, et cetera? You know, that create that has created a dynamic and so of, of social formation that has raise standards of living around the world by providing an exit voice for those who feel oppressed in their current regime, right? It basically creates a giant middle finger that you can use to say to China or to India or to Germany or to Italy. I don't like the direction that this is going. I'm going to pick up and go somewhere else, right? Um, so I, you know, I, I think that we have to be somewhat careful in deciding the absolutist sense of like, is social engineering good or bad coming from the public sector and embrace the idea that if we set up a system of, you know, rule by law, where that law is written, defined, determined in a court system with checks and balances, that that broadly is something that we should be encouraging, not discouraging. Could you maybe put, let's put some semantics on that then. How would we actually differentiate uh, what what probably you and I view as a threat in China in terms of what they might call uh, the social credit system. How are we differentiating that, a system where your political beliefs and statements dictate your ability to use money? How are we differentiating that from like being a citizen in the United States? They, they, those seem very different concepts to me, right? 
I, I, I do think that they're broadly very different concepts, although I would argue that we also have social credit systems called FICO scores, right? And so, yeah. you know, I, I object to the university, you know, the ver universal nature of FICO scores. I object to the fact that, you know, we treat certain forms of debt as non-dischargeable, even when you enter into them as a minor, as a minor, right? So, you know, typically the two largest sources of debt that people obtain are student loan debt and housing debt. Student loan debt is non-dischargeable under, under many of our current rules. And yet those are contracts that are being entered into in many situations by young people who have no mechanism to evaluate the claims that are being made against it, right? So uh, it, there are all sorts of problems that exist both on the public side and on the private side where it feels like there's unquestionably a breakdown. This is where we don't have these discussions around what are we trying to accomplish? Okay, what are we actually trying to do? Sure. And just to add um, what I, I guess what I mean, what I'm trying to get at when I say social engineering is, is not necessarily what you're describing, which I agree deserves to debate in the United States, like the existing credit score system we have um, and the existing incentives we have at the federal state city level for people to live in these societies. What I'm really talking about is what's beginning to be a possibility in China, right, where essentially the central government could dispense with this existing situation where they have to kind of deal with third-party companies to get to users and they have to negotiate through whether it be Tencent or whatever to get to user bases and to data. Um, but rather that they could have this just like direct knob and they could be like, oh, there's dissent in the auto industry. Well, let me just turn this button and deposit a thousand, you know, RMB or of credit or whatever into every single auto worker's, you know, pocket so that they stop protesting like I, I guess i'm talking about a much more advanced version of social engineering which would allow um you know incredibly elegant monetary discretion in terms of just being able to like pump certain sectors of the economy through direct stimulus but also blacklist huge sectors of the population whether it be ethnic groups or whatever that's what i really mean by the scepter of social engineering i don't know if you want to reflect on that well, so, so the way I would just describe it is, is, first of all, I agree that that's an extreme form of social engineering, but I would highlight that any form of incentive that is created by the public sector for either compliance or, you know, positive externalities, again, the Cass Sunstein sort of nudge framework, right? There's beating people over the head with a stick if they don't do what you want them to do. And there's a, hey, here's a reward system, right? Now, China would present its social credit score as a reward system. If you do the right things, if you behave in the right way, if you talk to the right people, if you say the right things, then you will receive benefits that exceed those that are received by people who engage in poor behaviors. I'm not suggesting that that's a solution. I'm suggesting that that's how they would present that. Right now, you and I would interpret it differently and say, I feel very uncomfortable with that. But we very much have aspects of that around the globe. If I pay my bills, if I you know, send my kids to school, if I obtain a certain amount of credit and I, I repay that on a consistent basis, then I will experience benefits that I otherwise would not, right? What we don't currently allow is inclusion, what are my sexual preferences, what is my race, what is my religious creed, etc. So those are explicitly prohibited in the form of discrimination protocols that prevent people from discriminating against me on a social credit score system basis. There's no reason that can't be done at the state level 
as well as being done in, on, at the private level. It's simply well, a matter of choice. You mean in America? Because obviously those things, beliefs, sex, sex uh, sexual preference, ethnicity, th- those are part and parcel of the Chinese model, right? hundred percent. But yeah. that is a choice, right? And so the point that I'm actually making is, is that we're still at a stage in the United States where I believe that we can have that conversation about what are we ultimately trying to achieve here, right? What are the objectives that we're trying to achieve with the social engineering that is an inevitable byproduct of any group of individuals coming together in a society, right? We all decide the rules of behavior, whether those are mm. you know, determined by a autocratic system or whether they are determined by collective voice or religious standards or anything else that could have come up through millennia of you know, behavioral dynamics. That's a choice. And again, my, my real concern is it's not a particularly helpful attitude to say you can't stop us. Right. Well, I just just to add, I think that, look, again, if you think that if one thinks that we can achieve uh, sufficiently pseudonymous or anonymous money uh, provided by the public sector in the form of CBDCs, if one thinks that we can have benevolent social engineering that really does encourage the best and the brightest and the most responsible and, and continues what I would agree with you in terms of domestically, at least how America has has really provided an incredibly uh, powerful social model over the last 75 years. And if you think that we can create a, a, a you know, a CBDC that, that actually protects the, and in some way at least, uh, stability and, and savings of workers um, over time, then yes, that, then, then it would make sense to have that, that as your mission. Um, but I guess where, again, where we disagree is that I, I just I haven't seen a track record from our government recently that would suggest that they are planning on doing any of those things. In fact, they're just planning on printing tons of money and increasing their, you know, interest in deplatforming certain people through control and influence on social media companies. And they seem to also be um, very interested in spying on their population. And that's in democracies. So again, to me, having this like non-discriminatory open source neutral money that that like can't be subjective um is going to be really great for the world uh especially for those who 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 have no chance at what you're describing again 4.3 billion people who live under dictatorships and authoritarian regimes there is no plan for them i mean their public money will always be used as a weapon against them so that's why i think the bitcoin project is like super super worthy uh to work on so when you when you think about that dynamic alex First of all, I agree with you. There's 4.3 billion people who don't have the opportunity for the same sort of self-actualization that you have in the United States to a lesser extent in Europe, I would argue, Australia, Canada, etc. Right? Most most of the traditional Western um, democracies is a strong phrase, but but you you know what I mean when I say it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the question, I guess, is: Do we handicap those systems that? operate largely in a way that you seem to believe and I think we share an agreement to this point have been largely beneficial for individuals and individual freedoms. Do we choose to handicap them, recognizing that the authoritarian regimes, the China's, et cetera, of the world don't really care, right? It actually works to their advantage to weaken the relative power and strength of the United States or of Europe, et cetera. Are we 
effectively empowering those who are working against our stated interests if we target those who might actually allow this to occur, right, in the interest of freedom and, and self-expression. There's an example I'll give from Russia um, where uh, Alexei Navalny, who's now in a, in a prison east of Moscow, yep. uh, for, for years he was campaigning, um, of course, as a opposition candidate, anti-corruption activist, and his campaign would um, often get their bank account frozen uh, and, and harassed, of course. Putin has all kinds of laws against foreign donations to, to political and organizations and NGOs. So they started using Bitcoin several years ago, and they would receive the money. And their um, uh, one of their spokespeople has been um, has talked about this a lot. The fact that because they started using Bitcoin, the government started easing up a little bit on the uh, sanctions and, and and freezing of the bank accounts because they knew that if they 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 cracked down with their full might that the Navalny team would move just entirely to Bitcoin, which is an area they just like couldn't really surveil as easily or control. So it actually, so that like the implementation of Bitcoin, the use of Bitcoin acted as a, as a check on, on the government, um, trying to kind of, uh, on its worst, uh, kind of, um, uh, desires, I would say. So I'm not sure that if you carry this over to the West and where we are in America, I'm not sold that Bitcoin will necessarily destroy the system. I, I think it could, actually put a check on some of the of the cbdc plans the, the fiat monies and could actually steer them in a better direction like if there is preference from the society as as demonstrated by tens of millions of americans owning bitcoin etc if there's preference for this kind of money then maybe the government takes a hint and decides to bake in more privacy decides to to, to i don't like you know somehow preserve savings of the citizens a little bit better uh, and, and maybe chill out a little bit with the deplatforming. I mean, if they do that, then there'll be less desire for Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin would die tomorrow if people did not need an open source, neutral, um, debasement proof currency. Like if public money was really good on all those fronts, I would I would have no use for Bitcoin. So I do think that the government can actually um, learn from people's interest in Bitcoin and shape its future monetary tools accordingly. So, I, so, so again, this is a point of agreement. I do think that there has been a helpful, um, that, that there has been a helpful raising of awareness that these are things that Americans and citizens around the world value. I think that we are somewhat unique in the United States in, in terms of our willingness to even consider those conversations. If I look at many other areas around the world, China would be obviously the foremost you know, they have absolutely no interest in incorporating those features. And so again, I think that speaks to the relative robustness of, of the American system that, that we would actually get to a point that senators and, and uh, appointed regulators, et cetera, would say, no, there's, there's something important here, right? Um, to me, that, that, that is really important. The question is, do I actually believe your statement that if the government were to embrace bearer instruments up to a point, let's say they raise the transactions to $25,000 that you did not require KMC, AML sort of framework, similar to the existing $10,000 limit within the banking system. You know, cash transactions were able to persist within a wallet function, etc. Do you really think that the Bitcoin community would say, fine, we'll quit? No, but remember, there's only Bitcoin 
user base is is relatively small still today. Um, if governments were really interested in keeping their monopoly on money and 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 in you know in let's say a generous view, keeping their in the American gen in a generous view of of what the American government has achieved, I guess historically, of keeping their ability to shape the world in a better trajectory than maybe the Chinese would. Okay, then then the they would have they would preserve that power for longer um if they screw up or if they betray us uh then the bitcoin movement will grow faster in my opinion uh it's just a matter of the time i mean look at india so th there's a new study that came out or a survey rather that came out the other day showing that around um 10 crore or basically 100 million indians own some sort of cryptocurrency and that something like 15 percent of indians are going to be buying Bitcoin in the next six months. And this is a, 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 a reaction to a uh, um, the terrible inflation in the in, in the rupee, but also in this uh, the reaction towards what the government wants to do with this sort of adhar social kind of credit system. Um, there, there's basically, you know, a popular reaction against both surveillance and and debasement happening in India. And um, I, I don't know how the Indian government would go about stopping that, uh, except if they were to pursue a monetary policy that was that that decreased the value of, of the currency less and 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 stopped surveillance but i guess i guess what where i where i'll conclude here is that in all the work i've done over the last 15 years around the world i just don't see governments stopping their trajectory all of a sudden and saying oh we'll be less repressive or corrupt like i just i don't have any evidence for that uh, e even in our even in our own country although there are many american officials and, and congressmen and women and policy leaders that that do recognize that what we're doing is bad I, I just don't know if they can win in the end which is why i've chosen the open source route um so i guess my question to both of you is obviously money is a tool of control for government how effective is it? i'm just trying to measure like the impact right like if i guess alex like in an optimistic sort of future and bitcoin the bitcoin standard does kind of take over uh, the monetary standard of the world Governments still do have some control over the people, right? That's not going to eliminate, at least in my view, corruption. I don't know if that's your position. Like, what are the realistic, pragmatic limitations of what non-sovereign money would afford people? I'll be very brief because I want to hear what Mike has to say on this. But um, no, it's really a matter of like, look, targeted arresting, targeted repression, targeted surveillance will be inescapable always. The idea behind encrypted messaging and Bitcoin as the kind of, let's say, two siblings of a, of, a tech, of a science of cryptography is that we can prevent mass surveillance and we can prevent mass debasement and we can prevent mass seizure and confiscation. Um, you're correct in that if, yeah, if someone wants to do like a, a $3 wrench attack, they can come get my stuff. That's, that's true to an extent. But I would say that in the next couple of years, multi-signature technology is going to get to the point where um, you want to come get my stuff? Uh, you could come torture me to death, but you're not going to get it because it's going to require two other people to sign, and they're on t and they're in two different continents. So, multi-signature control in Bitcoin uh, is becoming doable, even just with like three smartphones. You can set up a two of three or a three of five, and you can have people in different jurisdictions. So, I think the math is getting very, very strong when it comes to being able to protect people. Um, but at the end of the day, I would agree that it, it, no, it does not prevent certainly corruption. It does not prevent targeted surveillance or repression but but it but it like does a chilling effect a, against the mass implementation of these things um and 
quite importantly, um, the, the the other piece that's that's missing here is that the governments themselves, you know, start adopting the te- the, the 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 technology, right? Um, that's only possible because Bitcoin over time its value has gone up a lot. So, it, you know, you start to have a government that starts to realize it needs to adopt the stuff, and then, you know, we don't know where it goes from there. But anyway. So my pushback would be on on two fronts. One is um, I generally think that the environment that Alex is referring to where there are adverse consequences for governments behaving in a certain way, um, we tend to underappreciate the uniqueness of the last 500 years in that process, right? So through the vast majority of human history, governments in one form or another had a a very uncomfortable control over your life, your property, etc. Right? Uh, Explicitly in the form of serfdom, you were bound to the land, you had no real prospect. If you left, you know, you could be arrested, thrown in jail. Um, If you entered into a debt contract and were unable to fulfill the obligation, whether in a private or a public sector component, you would be thrown into jail in a debtor's prison, etc. Right? That changed with the ability to take your physical person and withdraw it from the government, right? The ability to emigrate from China, Europe, um, various other places around the world to relative pockets of individual freedom in the United States, Canada, Australia, etc., really established the conditions under which governments were forced to begin to modify their behavior. We have no evidence of a system in which the lack of that ability to use force results in people saying, fine, torture me to death. I don't care. You can't have my keys, right? Like it's just, it's not a realistic appraisal. And we've seen that very clearly in the period of coronavirus where people have had the opportunity to stand up and say, no, I won't accept these restrictions. And almost universally, they've refused to do so. Right. We just don't have the ability to pick up and leave and choose a different adventure than the one that we have geographically today, for the most part. And I, I, I think the underappreciation of that, right, the, the romanticization of a, a, a Che revolutionary, you know, where it's, uh, you know, you can't take it from me, you can't force me to give it to you, et cetera. Right. Like, man, shove some bamboo under my fingernails and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be tossing that at your direction as quickly as possible. And that's just going to further embolden the governments to behave in that manner. Look, look, in China, in India, in Nigeria, like basically the largest countries in East Asia, South Asia, and in Africa, governments have tried to ban Bitcoin. Um, I agree that, that we haven't seen the, the full brunt of, of their full attack yet, but they've been quite aggressive, uh, especially in China. Um, in India, the Supreme Court has been pushing back. The people have been pushing back. In Nigeria, the government basically went in public, had a congressional session in February where they, they were basically saying, we don't know what to do about this. Um, and, and yet, you know, we haven't seen mass state violence against Bitcoin users yet. I'm not saying it won't come, but there are reasons for that. Again, number one, it's really hard to find Bitcoin users and, and target them at a mass level. It's easy to go after one person, like a Ross Ulbricht or whatever, if you have the full weight of the, of the FBI and the, and the NSA, sure. But like to go after 10,000 Ross Ulbricht is not easy. It's extremely expensive to do that. Um, and secondly, uh, the technology by which you would spy on Bitcoin users is, is very is, is very time consuming, very expensive. And the software itself is getting better. So like for the Nigerian government to hire chain analysis companies to help track Bitcoin use, I, I, 
It's not happening. Like they don't do it right now. It's 2021. Are they going to do it in 10 years? You know what? In 10 years, it'll be useless because we're going to be using Bitcoin in a way that's basically surveillance proof. Uh, the software is getting so good that in two, three years from now, when you're using Lightning to transact with someone, you won't be able to trace it back to a public key or UTXO or even even a footprint on the blockchain. So like the the software is getting so good that the surveillance will be really hard to do, um, except in a super, super targeted, expensive way. So I think that's what I mean by like the fact that uh, the, the wrench attacks are mitigated. Yes, they will always exist 100%. But the idea that the government will be able to just like 6102 the population like like we did in America in the 30s, Bitcoin was designed to fight that like, you're gonna have to come and get me like individually and find me. You won't be able to just like mass penalize 100,000 people anymore. It's too difficult. And that's, that's what the Bitcoin community is trying to build is a protection mechanism against sort of mass persecution. If, if I could just actually inter interject there, the point that I was trying to make, uh, Mike, and I'd be curious to get your response here is I actually don't think governments really like, especially the U.S. government, doesn't like making those executive order type policies like they did with gold, which is ultimately... Uh, you know, an unsuccessful policy. The the other example that I would give you is the prohibition, right? I'm not saying people like Bitcoin as much as they like alcohol, <laughs> but they tried, right? They tried to ban something that was wildly popular. It was a huge failure. The government didn't end up looking great. A lot of negative externalities. So I, I feel like when governments are trying to make a decision about this, they're actually pretty wary of taking drastic action. I don't, uh, for the record, I don't think the government's going to put bamboo up anyone's anything, uh, but I, I don't think they're going to try to forcibly take things. And I guess the question that I would put to you is I actually don't think the government would probably want to take a drastic enough action against Bitcoin just because if they had to roll it back, in my opinion, that would be a pretty negative consequence for a government. I don't know what your response is to that. So, I, I mean, I guess I would just point out that, you know, gold is at least as detection resistant as Bitcoin, right? I can stick a sizable quantity of gold under my floorboards. I can stick it behind a painting. I can put it in any number of places, and yet they largely successfully drove it out of the exchange by targeting not so much individuals, although they did choose individuals to make an example of, but more broadly, they chose to make it impossible for businesses to use, right? So for commercial transaction, that's actually relatively easy to do, right? If you run a business and you can't explain to me where every transaction occurred under a government surveillance system that incorporates wide-scale transaction taxes, it's pretty easy to enforce on the commercial side, right? Amazon, if you say Bitcoin is illegal, is not going to put at risk their overall business model to transact in Bitcoin with you, right? So I, I just don't see it in the same way that, that Alex does or that you're ascribing to that the governments don't want to do this. Do they actively want to go out and have to do this? Probably not. Are they willing to? 100%. But, but like, but could you comment on the the attempts to ban or, or restrict Bitcoin use in in Nigeria and India and China and yeah I, I, I mean ultimately I think the you know part of what you're actually hitting on is is what is actually important which is it is going to be the United States that determines this it's going to be almost impossible for Nigeria or Indonesia or anyone else unless they're willing to actually fully break off away from a Western banking system to lock people out in that manner. I think the risk that you run, and this is the point that I just keep raising, is if you approach it from the standpoint of effectively a Shays rebellion saying to George Washington, you can't force us to pay taxes, we just fought a law against this, and I don't feel sufficiently represented in your deliberations, you're going to end up with military enforcement of it. 
Same way we did in, the, in, in you know, 1783 or whatever it was. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody, customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned. I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. I, I want to ask, actually, I want to I focus uh, the conversation a little bit more on this idea of central bank digital currencies in general. Um, I guess I'll just speak for myself when I kind of look out at the next 15 or 20 years. Um, and I, I will say my own opinion is that I don't think the current system that we have uh, is sustainable. Um, I, you know, I'm just kind of doing the same thing that everyone else is looking doing and looking at, you know, rising M1 and M2 and some of the problems that we're facing, at least over in the U.S. and saying, I don't know. I'm listening to guys like Stan Druckenmiller say there's a there's a good chance that uh, the U.S. dollar won't be the reserve currency in 15 years. And I'm saying, okay, if that's the scenario, then what do we replace uh, the the reserve currency with? And if it's not the dollar, suddenly every single choice that we have doesn't really seem that probable, right? Could be Bitcoin. Maybe that's one possibility. Maybe it's a basket of currencies. Maybe it's one other fiat currency. Um, I my sense is that when I listen to the financial community, they think that that's going to be a CBDC. Um, maybe it's a US CBDC, maybe it's a, a you know, digital renminbi, maybe it's some combination. Um, I guess my question, and maybe Mike, I'll direct this at you first, but one of the big problems that I see with CBDCs is that to me, it doesn't seem to really fix 
any of our problems. It actually almost exacerbates a lot of the problems, both that we're seeing in terms of uh, governments and central banks manipulating interest rates. Uh, I think that only gets worse under a CBDC. I, I, and it also disintermediates the commercial banking system, right? Uh, I don't think the Fed probably wants a direct banking relationship uh, with all the citizens in the U.S. And they're also, they kind of like uh, having a strong commercial banking system. So I guess when you look out into the future, right? Like, let's say it's not going to be the dollar. Do you think a, a U.S.-based, at least CBDC, is viable? Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Well, first of all, I, I mean, while I have an incredible amount of respect for Stan Druckenmiller, I think it's, you know, saying that the U.S. is, it is unlikely that the U.S. dollar remains the reserve currency 15 years from now without identifying the alternative, right, and what is likely to replace it feels fatuous, right? Um, it's a provocative thing to say, but it's ultimately quite pointless, right? Um, the second point that I would make on on that front is I, I agree with you that CBDCs can exacerbate many of the challenges that you're highlighting. We also, though, can choose to have CBDCs that enforce those components, right? So we can embed in them open source dynamics so that it is auditable how much information can actually be gathered. Are there transaction levels that are, by definition within the protocol, not subject to review? Right. We, we can do all those things. That's one of the beauties of a digital framework is actually it is programmed. Right. So we can choose to set those rules. I think, unfortunately, by um, copping out to the well, the dollar is going away, therefore, it really doesn't matter. Um, we're, we can just assume another asset is going to take over. We're missing the opportunity to be involved in those discussions. Yeah, I, look, I think it, it comes down to uh, to trust, like, does the framework in the United States or Switzerland or the EU or Japan allow the citizens to help the government build good money that that would that would preclude or make the use of Bitcoin unnecessary? Um, I just I, I don't see a track record here. Again, we have a government that has been breaking the law, breaking the Constitution to spy on its citizens. That's about to mint the trillion dollar coin um, that that has, you know, been eager to start deplatforming people. I mean, we're starting to get to a point where these things like YouTube and Facebook are essentially public infrastructure at some level, and, and yet you have widespread censorship. So I just don't see even in the freest country, let's say, if we want to call the US the quote unquote freest country, I just don't see the signs that they would be up for and able to build a properly privacy protecting or social engineering kind of proof or, or debasement proof, or at least debasement resistant uh, currency and that's really what draws me um, to, to Bitcoin. And I, look, we'll keep building on Bitcoin until we see something better from the government. Um, I, you know, I, I, especially for the folks in living in authoritarian regimes, I don't know what else you'd want them to do. I mean, it's really their only hope, in my opinion. I, I, I don't know what what else, what other options or measures they have. You know. Well, one, one of the points that I would make is is that a CBDC administered by the U.S. government actually has many of the features that you're looking for and the ability to target those authoritarian regimes, right? There's absolutely nothing that prevents a U.S. CBDC from being able to offer banking relationships to those in El Salvador, right? It doesn't have to be restricted to our own citizens. And we can treat them with the exact same rules, et cetera. And if their transactions are fall below a threshold level, there's absolutely no reason why we can't incorporate that. Right. And by and large, that's the idea behind dollarization is just that it pre creates the conditions under which you actually are able to establish rails into a foreign banking system through swap lines and various other components that theoretically are capable of improving those conditions. And I think by and large, you would agree that 
where countries have chosen to dollarize and place restrictions on their local governments, there's been both pros and there's been cons associated with it. The pros are that it does place restrictions on authoritarian regimes. It limits their ability to use monetary policy or fiscal policy to dictate behaviors and pick winners and losers within their economy. The negative associated with it is that it tends to benefit the wealthy who are the ones who have the most to lose from populist regimes that engage in, you know, what would be thought of as redistributed fiscal policies, right? <clears throat> you highlighted this extraordinarily well in your recent piece on El Salvador, that dollarization and a move to a harder currency was relatively unpopular amongst the working class and has largely served to reinforce the strength of the elites within the El Salvador community. Moving to an even more restrictive system effectively preserves the wealth of those who already have it and reduces the ability of those who are ultimately in the working class from gaining it. Look, I, I thank you. And I would look, I agree. There's an I mean, look, there's an appetite for dollars. First and foremost, you look at a country like Venezuela or Cuba, people want dollars um, and where they use Bitcoin. It's it, it's not necessarily always as a savings. It's often as a way to get dollars. Um, this is just the facts on the ground. Right. However, um, you know, when you look at the crypto crypto more broadly or cryptocurrency, one of its largest outcomes, um, if we're just going to put Bitcoin aside for a second, um, is in, is stable coins and Tether and USDC in particular, especially Tether, um, are serving as euro dollars, essentially, as, are serving as extensions of the dollar system in emerging markets. So, for example, in Lebanon and Palestine, this is what people are trying to get their hands on Tether, <laughs> you know. And, you know, it's hard for me to go to bat for Tether because I, I, I believe that it, it could collapse any time. But uh, it, the reality is there's this huge appetite for dollars around the world. Um, I guess the question is just like as we move forward into the coming decades, like that would point to a world entirely run by the U.S. government, essentially, where we're all at the discretion of the U.S. government. And it results in situations like in El Salvador, for instance, where when the economy we face a downturn. U.S. citizens get stimulus checks, but Salvadorans don't, right? So you're going to essentially have this tiered uh, world if if what you're saying is true and we end up being able to make this, you know, pretty good CBDC that has pretty good privacy and all these things that a lot of people would accept as concessions. You'd have this really even more dominant currency that everybody would be using either through the official means, right? Like, you could compare it to like dollars versus euro dollars, but you'd either have like official CBDC in the United States or official commercial banking credits, or you'd have euro dollars or like what are, you know, CBDC euro dollars, right? Like Tether essentially, and, and it's, it's, it's future descendants, but essentially the whole world would be using dollars. And, you know, I, I just feel like that vision of the world is, is leaves, leaves things to be desired because again, like us citizens will get the benefits um, or some us citizens will get the benefits where a lot of other people um, won't. And this also sidesteps the, the whole conversation about just general collapse of purchasing power that people have with their earnings. Even the dollar, which is like the hardest fiat money, I would say, has left a lot to be desired in that department um, over, the, over the last few decades. And that's why we're seeing stuff get really expensive, like real estate or tech stocks or whatever. Um, but the average wages for the average worker in our country have been pretty flat since the 70s. Like, I, I think you would just see an exacerbation of that. So again, even in that beautiful scenario that you're trying to paint where we may have this kind of like even more dollarized world backed by different kinds of 
both CBDCs and maybe like like CBDC euro dollars. I, I just think that's not a world that I'd be particularly excited about. Um, and that's again why I'm, I'm 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 hopeful that there will at least be an option for people to have have this open source Bitcoin as well. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I mean, I think that there's a couple of different components that are worth hitting there, right? So one is, is that it's always dangerous when we use data sets like median average, uh, median household income uh, to derive insights in terms of the behavior of people's purchasing power, income, etc. I don't think there's any question that the purchasing power of the median U.S. worker has actually expanded dramatically since the 1970s. You certainly couldn't purchase an iPhone. You certainly couldn't purchase a flat panel TV. You certainly couldn't get modern tr uh, cancer treatments. You didn't have available to you the type of transportations that we have with heated seats and all sorts of wonderful things in the cars that we have. The rates of car ownership have gone up. The rates of ownership of air conditioning, plumbing, et cetera, have all improved over that time period. <clears throat> what has also changed is the definition of a household, which is really the driver of that median information. So if I go back to 1971, where the data begins to, to inflect quite meaningfully, the median household was a married white couple with 2.2 children. Today, the median household is a single mother. To compare those two is, is just not accurate. If I look at a like-for-like like comparison, you've seen dramatic increases in purchasing power. Not suggesting that the US system is perfect, but I do think it's really important that we don't misrepresent the data in this analysis. The second point that I would make on that is I absolutely think that that's the highly likely outcome, that a U.S. system that reinforces property rights and that reinforces freedom on an individual basis will continue to have likely the best business model in the world and will accrue power in that process. And it is unfortunate that the El Salvadorian government or the Venezuelan government doesn't choose to respect the individual rights of its people. But ultimately, there is a cost associated with that in the same way there was a cost for Germany for backing the Nazi government in the 1930s or for the Japanese for backing the um, emperor in the 1930s, right? There are costs associated with those adverse choices. I'm not suggesting that a world in which the U.S. rides roughshod is an ideal world, but it is a likely world. And to ignore that in favor of so somewhat of a utopian view, I think, feels disingenuous. I have a follow-up question there, um, Mike, and I'm, I'm going to, one thing that I'm getting from listening to you speak here in our conversations in the past is um, a lot of this for you kind of comes down to potentially a budding conflict in between uh, the U.S. and China. And while the U.S. might not be perfect, that's probably preferable. So any kind of power structures that exist that would support the U.S. maybe in your view is favorable, the dollar being one of those things. What would you say to the argument that actually, um, crypto being successful uh, and Bitcoin being successful would actually be beneficial to the US. And the reason that I say that is because when I think about the ideologies of Bitcoin and what it actually does, I think that's completely and 100% incompatible with the Chinese government, uh, their need for control. They're also their closed capital account. It's like a whole bunch of reasons why crypto doesn't necessarily work in China. And while it feels like we might be surrendering something uh, by being the issuer of the reserve currency and, and favoring Bitcoin instead, um, it might actually be beneficial uh, in the long run to us because relatively it would be more disadvantageous to, to China. I, I don't know if you agree with that argument or what would you say that actually maybe a crypto standard or a Bitcoin standard would be more beneficial to the U.S.? Uh, <clears throat> um, so, so very quickly, I actually think that part of the problem here is, is the articulation that 
monetary policy solves everything, right? That the idea that the 19th century was productive or that the 18th century was productive because of the gold standard to me is a misrepresentation of history. The innovations that occurred in that time period were actually a the driver, the success of those systems, um, <clears throat> the, the underlying dynamics of whether you choose gold or you choose anything else. It really just facilitated an environment of globalization, dramatic land surplus, the exploitation of that land by Western uh, individuals, et cetera. Like, you know, point to Native American populations and say, did they come out of the 20th, out of the 19th century better off? Of course not, right? Did they have the gold standard available to them? Of course, they lost, right? It's that they didn't get better over the course of that century. So it's not tied to the monetary policy. There's always going to be exploitation. There's always going to be tools that are used that are more favorable to some than to others. And that's a really unfortunate byproduct of the fact that life is, you know, as uh, uh, Jared Diamond pointed out, you know, nasty, brutish and short sort of thing, right? Um, <clears throat> can we make it better through the choices that we make? Can we establish behaviors that improve the average person or the majority of people's lives? Absolutely. Will there be losers in that process? 100%. And it, it's really unfortunate. And part of what a flexible monetary and fiscal policy allows you to do is create the social cohesion and the systems of insurance that allow you to say, you know what, if you happen to be a loser in this process, through no fault of your own, you happen to live in Flint, Michigan, or you happen to be somewhere else, we can smooth that and share the insurance on a societal basis, right? Insurance is a valuable tool. It can raise everybody's living standards and the resistance to the, the willingness to do that on a public basis that effectively underpins the libertarian leanings of a Bitcoin can actually drive far more adverse outcomes than, than um, they establish, than, than positive outcomes they could facilitate. Uh, Michael, your question, just to respond also from my point of view, I, I just, yeah, I don't see how tyrannical regimes uh, end up dealing um, well, with the Bitcoin standard, again, it, 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 it resonates and underlines with free speech and property rights and open markets. I think crypto will benefit them in many ways or could. Um, I think all these regimes could make stable coins. All these regimes could, could design CBDCs that could help them. But ultimately, I, I don't think Bitcoin helps them at all uh, in the long run. And with, with regard to monetary policy, because I think that ends up being important because we probably agree on the privacy stuff. We even agree seemingly a little bit on the social engineering stuff, although I would push back on, on that it would be good even in a democracy. But the monetary policy thing seems to be where we have the biggest disagreement. I mean, look, in America in the last two years, we got what? We got um, something like 650 billionaires, according to a speech that our president made. I mean, maybe it's not accurate, but he, he said this a few months ago. 650 billionaires in the United States during the pandemic saw their net worth increase by about 1.2 trillion, um, and yet 20 million Americans lost their jobs. So, like, monetary policy in our country favors a very small number of people. I, I, I and I understand Mike disagrees with me, but I, I, I feel like that's my argument, and it's something I've tried to observe over the last let's say 30 years, 40 years, um, if you've been in defense or investing or insurance or finance uh, or software, you've done really, really well. If you've been in manufacturing or farming, um, you have not done very well. And, you know, it's true that like the average American now can afford certain things. But like, I mean, I just in a personal story, yeah, 
you know, I, I saw some of the bills coming through for uh, my father recently, and it was insane for for some of these these medical bills. I mean, I, I maybe maybe he wouldn't have been able to afford it in the seventies either uh, when he was in Vietnam, but uh, certainly couldn't afford it now. So so I don't necessarily know that you can make the case that like things like education or healthcare or you know investments for the future are are easier to afford today for the average american it, it just seems like tough um and and bitcoin provides an alternative where the literally the money that, that you're using increases in purchasing power dramatically over time i mean we don't have a time machine we can't look at what's in five years or ten years but like bitcoin is up a lot for people who've chosen to use it now that's more dramatic if you've lived in a lower income neighborhood or you live in lebanon or venezuela i agree but really, that's that's the part of our segment of our population that needs the help the most. And they've been op- opting into this new kind of money that has appreciated their purchasing power by 10x in the last year, by 50x in the last five years, by 5,000x in the last 10 years. So, I mean, I don't think that that's going to continue at that same rate, but it's clearly a valuable technology if, if you can have money that appreciates your purchasing power over time. Um, and it's it's going to be something people choose. Again, I'm not so sure about the philosophy thing here of like, <laughs> like, are you rooting for the dollar's demise? I mean, not really. I mean, I, I hope the U.S. government writes the ship. I just I'm doubtful that it will. And it would be silly to not plan accordingly, um, I guess, is the philosophy of the Bitcoin community at large, is that we, we, we have assessed that the U.S. government will, in its quest to do CBDCs, continue to debase the currency, continue to spy on the people, and start to do more deplatforming and social engineering. Maybe we're wrong, but like that, that's what I'm seeing right now, and that's in the freest country in the world. Forget all the other countries that, that seem a lot worse. So that's why I think it's a moral imperative to be pushing towards the Bitcoin standard. I have a question for you, um, Alex. Um, two parts of what you just said uh, there. Um, one, there's kind of the moral aspect, and then two, how much is monetary policy the problem? Uh, and I would, for the record, uh, I want to be impartial on moderating this, but uh, I'm pro-Bitcoin. I have a lot of Bitcoin. I want it to be successful. But there are some things that I see that kind of worry me. Um, one point of view that I recently have had trouble shaking um, is actually comes from Alan Greenspan, who used to be a sound money guy. right? Um, and he stopped being a sound money guy uh, because you know the idea was what use is honest money if governments aren't going to be honest as well. That's why I was kind of asking you guys before, like, what are the practical limits of how much being the issuer of the currency matters as an idea of control? And one idea that I kind of get, it's kind of like a Bitcoiner community thing. It's also gold community is if you put speed rails around governments, that that will impact their behavior. When a lot of history is kind of shows us the opposite. Um, And when we did have a gold standard, like to use one concrete example, uh, in World War II, Right. Yeah, there was a gold standard and basically all of Europe, uh, I'm speaking more generally than I should be here, but kind of bankrupted themselves to fight this war. Right. It wasn't like, oh, we can't really fight this war. uh, So we should just be peaceful because we can't afford it. Everyone was like, screw it. And caution of the winds. And it all happened anyway. So I don't know. What would you respond to that line of reasoning? Because I sometimes I hear this idea getting thrown around and I'm like, I'm not 100 percent sure I agree with that. Well, in the Bitcoin world, it would be true. I mean, Nixon floated the dollar to fight the war in Vietnam and to, you know, for guns and butter, basically. I don't think he could have afforded it had had we not, had he not floated the dollar. In addition, he had to get people to buy the dollar even when it was floated. So, you know, he had to hire this bond salesman off Wall Street. 
Simon, the Treasury Secretary, and they had to figure out a way for foreign countries to buy our, our debt, even though it was decreasing in value dramatically. But they figured it out. They did a deal with Saudi Arabia, and the rest is history. Um, now, a lot has changed since then. We had the Saudis go broke. We had the Japanese buy our debt. We had the Germans buy our debt. We had the Chinese buy our debt. Now we're buying our own debt. So the United States government is currently the majority buyer of, of, of newly created debt. I, you know, Mike probably knows better than me. You know, I'm a human rights guy. He's a finance guy. He could probably tell you where that road's going to lead. I'm not sure. Um, but the reality is that uh, governments will, I, I agree 100%, do whatever they can when they're desperate. But in a Bitcoin world, there's ultimately a limit to what they can do. I think economies that adopt Bitcoin first will have stronger fiat currency, actually, because it will be backed by Bitcoin um, and will be more healthy than ones that aren't. Uh, this is going you know, 10, 20 years into the future. And I think the United States has a really good opportunity now to attract Bitcoin mining, to attract Bitcoin industries. And, and it really is doing this at the, at the moment in a, in a big way, actually. I just got back from a conference in Texas where I saw everybody from Hester Peirce to SEC Commissioner Peirce to Ted Cruz to Cynthia Loomis to, you know, a whole bunch of public, you know, uh, politicians and policymakers in America being super pro-Bitcoin. And I think they realize how strong America could be if we go on this sort of, you know, trajectory to be more welcomed, welcoming to Bitcoin, as our enemies are essentially collapsing on Bitcoin and, and, and fleeing away from it. So I think this is, this is a good opportunity um, for us. But yes, it does make us a government and a society that is more limited in what we can do. We will no longer have the, the privilege, as the French said in the, in, you know, in, in the, in the 60s, uh, of being the world's reserve currency and getting to issue whatever debt we need and having other governments buy it up happily. It won't be the case. We're going to have to make tougher decisions. But I just think that'll, that'll result in a better society. I understand a lot of people will argue that'll result in a much worse society. But, but that's kind of my perspective. I have, sorry, uh, Mike, I want to let you respond, but I've got one more question for you, Alex. Um, just on the Bitcoin community uh, overall, which again, I would consider myself a part of. Blockworks is a crypto company. I've been doing this for four years. I would say I have a huge emotional stake uh, in the success of this entire industry. One thing, you know, when I look at kind of like the marketing strategy and the community growth strategy of Bitcoin over the course of the last 11 or so years, I would say one tactic that's been extraordinarily successful is kind of not an adversarial tactic, but something that looks a little bit like an adversarial tactic, right? Like it's, there's kind of the sense of you're on my team or you're against me uh, sort of thing. And um, I think that's served it really well for a long period of time. Um, but I'm wondering if you, A, do you agree with that idea? Maybe there's like a rosier way of, of painting um, the, the community, but uh, also as it, like let's say in a really optimistic kind of future, Bitcoin does ascend to the world stage, becomes um, uh, you know, as important as we all hope it might be. Um, do you think that it's the right, like, does Bitcoin ever kind of move from being the founder, like the scrappy, get it done, uh, you know, get out of my way to like the CEO being like, just more welcoming in general, because, and the reason I ask you this question is not to be like detrimental to it, but like, again, I feel like I have a stake in this community. I'd like to see, do you agree? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you agree with me? Yeah. I, I mean, at the end, I don't think at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters. I mean, there's tens of millions of Bitcoin users in India who aren't on English speaking social media. Um, we have people who are loud on Twitter or whatever um, who are influential in Bitcoin, uh, but that's only to an extent, right? Um, look at Bukele in El Salvador. 99.9% .9 of Bitcoin users don't even live in El Salvador. So, I mean, you know, what you see on Twitter is just a very small fraction of the overall world community. 
um, the really the only thing that unites quote unquote the Bitcoin community <laughs> is 21 million is the fact that we have have entered agreement on a currency that's not going to increase uh, its monetary supply. Every for everything else, bets are off. People have disagreements on how private sh Bitcoin should be. People have disagreements on how traceable it should be. People have disagreements on Coinbase and Square and is it good for banks to get involved? They have disagreements on whether mining companies should go public. Basically, Bitcoiners don't. Agree, they, they have disagreements on the government reaction to the pandemic, to what's happening with the climate. There's vociferous disagreement on literally everything except for 21 million. That's the only thing that unites us. Everything else, you know, it, it's not clear. The, and, and the big thing is that's what Satoshi invented Bitcoin for was to be an alternative to central banking and to bailouts, government bailouts of the private sector. Uh, it was not done in the revelation of the Snowden files or anything like that. It was done as a direct result of the great financial crisis. Um, and that's what's in the Genesis block. So 21 million unites us. And that's that's where we will rise or fall on is this idea of uh, predictable monetary issuance that no no humans can can manipulate. Do you think Bitcoin should be taxable? Do I think it should be taxable? I mean, again, my opinions don't, don't matter too much, but it depends on the regime. I, I personally think it should be voluntary uh, legal tender in every country. Um, so in that case, it would only be taxed as income. Uh, it would not, you would not have capital gains tax on it based on its value floating against the dollar. Um, but yeah, I think people, like I plan on paying taxes on my Bitcoin. I, I hope it becomes legal tender um, in my country. But uh, absolutely, I'm not like some anarchist. I believe in good government. And I think that governance, governments will be forced to start listening to their people more so they can get their hands on more Bitcoin in the future. You know, it's going to be a little harder for them just to like do things like CBDC auto taxing and stuff. Not going to work if a lot of people have opted into the Bitcoin standard. There'll have to be this kind of more robust dialogue in between citizens and governments. Um, at least that's my belief. So, so what is the mechanism that you would expect to use for taxation under a Bitcoin standard? I mean, if you aren't paying your taxes, you're going to get arrested. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, do you not think governments will be able to figure that out? Like, I, I'm not sure. Like, what? how would that how would that fail uh because not you know i they're my private keys i can't i'm not going to tell you how much i have i'm not going to tell you how much i earned right why, why do i need to do any of that it's voluntary yes but only as a private but once you start getting involved in business being on a board uh doing anything in the larger corporate sector you have to make disclosures um that will be i just i guess i don't i, I don't believe you're going to have these like thousands and thousands of mega trillionaires that no one knows about and that don't interact with society. Um, I, I think that this will trickle down through society and that people will, there's a social contract. I mean, you want to live in this town? Great. You got to pay X uh, for this town to operate. I, I really don't see Bitcoin changing that in the future. Um, I, I think people will make an agreement. Oh, I want to live in this town. I want to pay for my kids to go to this school. Great. How much is it going to cost? Even even hardcore libertarians make those trade offs every day in America. <laughs> like the, like if, and if they try to evade the taxes, eventually they get arrested. I don't necessarily think the monetary substrate changing is going to change the fact that humans have made trade offs against their ideology to remain in a in a modern society. But that's maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being naive. Well, but I mean, I guess that would actually be part of the point that I'm making is just that if you establish 21 million, you know, divided by seven and a half billion people and 
some sub-segment has 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, those extraordinarily wealthy individuals are the ones that are most able to protect their wealth. They do not have any need to transact. They effectively are able to, they are the ones who are truly able to opt out of the system. I mean, this is a point that I've made over and over and over again. And you highlight again in your in your piece on Bukele, which is, is that the working class is the one that tends to be hurt by an external monetary system. Okay. I mean, look, I, look, Bezos, like, can, I mean, in a lot of countries are angry that Amazon doesn't pay taxes or whatever. Like, it, like, you have mega billionaires today. You have insane. Inqu- we have we have income inequality in America that we haven't seen since the late nineteen twenties. I mean, so I mean, the rich are just getting richer and richer and richer with the fiat system. Those of us in Bitcoin believe that it'll be different in Bitcoin because you won't have monetary corruption at the base. You'll have all of the normal corruption, but you won't have monetary corruption. You won't have the ability for the government to issue more currency to bail out the private sector. Um, that will be that's actually that's a that's a perfect illustration though because when you go back to 1929 we were actually on a hard money gold standard and yet we incurred the greatest levels of inequality we've ever seen what solved that was actually a weak monetary policy the devaluation of the dollar the aggressive taxation of high incomes and wealth right that's what actually led to the relative equality of the 1940s 1950s 1960s that's a subjective interpretation of history there are a lot of people who believe that we started to go off uh, the gold standard earlier than that, and that that is one of the reasons we had such a disastrous like you know era between 1915 and 1930. I, I'm not an early American historian, though. I would just say that what you just said is subjective and open to interpretation. Um, I, I would agree that what you said is a very popular mainstream view. I'm not going to dispute it, um, but I will say there's other interpretations out there. Um, the point the point is that like clearly we're, we disagree a lot on the monetary policy piece. We agree on the privacy piece. We agree partly on the social engineering piece. I think it just comes down to like you, Mike, and I'd love to hear you like lay out how you're going to, you know, in broad strokes, how would you go about convincing, again, a government that seems not that interested in the privacy of its citizens, not that interested in fighting deplatforming, and not that interested in being more responsible from a monetary policy point of view. How, how is that government going to be convinced to make a CBDC that respects those things? I mean, I'm, if, if you've got the case, I'm totally willing to hear it. And I would certainly support that, you know. So the way I would argue it, and I, I have these conversations on a very regular basis, I try everything I possibly can in meeting with monetary authorities or um, government representatives in the form of senators or Congress people, right? I consistently reinforce that this is a benefit that as a net on a net basis that we actually benefit from this. These individuals are not particularly sophisticated on a, on a financial basis, right? They don't understand why privacy is particularly valuable when they see privacy largely playing into the hands of criminality, right? Raising awareness as to why we're willing to accommodate some degree of criminality in exchange for the features of privacy, I think is actually a really important component to it. The second thing that I would actually highlight is, is that withdrawing from that and telling people, you can't make me do something, Right, is not exactly the sort of behavior that is gonna to lead to the positive outcomes you're hoping for, particularly when the authoritarian regimes like China candidly don't care, right? What they ultimately care about is control of 1.5 billion people. Mm-hmm. They don't care about the relative wealth or, or success of those individuals once they have control of them, right? And so what you're actually describing is a system in which 
you are arguing that we should be fractured in our conversations in, in the developed world, the Western developed world, the regions of the world that try to respect individual freedoms and handicapped relative to those who, quite frankly, couldn't give a damn. Look, I, I think, it, again, it comes down to um, what you just said in terms of how will citizens react, how will governments react. In the 80s, the, the, there was a book I have um, called The Rise of the Computer State by a New York Times journalist who who felt that um, we were going to face a, a very troubling few decades with regard to the centralization and digitization of our lives. And he argued for, and this is a lot of what Shoshana Zuboff and many other argue as well, is that to fight surveillance capitalism and, and surveillance in our society and to fight even CBDCs, we need aggressive... Um, you know, basically government regulation. That, that's, that's what this journalist said in the 80s. He said, essentially, we need to lobby for citizen rights. Now, at the same time, the cypherpunks came out and said, no, we can't trust the government. We have to seize our rights through open source code. Well, thank God the cypherpunks existed because they did exactly that, and they defeated the government. They defeated the Clinton administration. They defeated the clipper chip. They defeated Joe Biden. Um, and, and now encryption, which the government was trying to argue was illegal to export as, as a munition because the governments had basically controlled encryption for decades as a military secret. The fact that these folks leaked it out uh, and, and started, um, you know, you know, printing it on T-shirts and putting it in books and, you know, basically showing the government that you couldn't stop us. The fact that they won and that Phil Zimmerman never actually went to prison is incredible and shows you the power of open source code. So, I don't, um, I, you know, you, I, I, I get it why you think it's negative to be saying to the government, you can't stop us. But um, there's also some pride in that. I mean, they couldn't stop us in the 90s. They failed. And it was much to the credit of the United States, actually, that encryption helped a web, open web boom. Um, I think we're going to, you know, again, here's where we disagree, but I think we're going to repeat the same thing. I don't think they can stop us with Bitcoin. I think they're going to lose. And I think it's going to be to the credit of the United States, an open system based on um, the Declaration of Independence and based on the Bill of Rights. I think it's going to vibe very well with a Bitcoin society, whereas I think the, the, the dictators that I've been working against over the last 15 years aren't going to be very happy with their inability to control people through the money system. They become very used to that, and that's going to be taken away from them by the people over time. And I'm, I'm very optimistic, I guess. Uh, I have a sunny view of the future. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so so I, I think that's actually a really important component, right? I mean, the success and the reason why Phil Zimmerman didn't go to jail wasn't because they printed it on T-shirts and they broadly distributed it in the open source. It's because the, the courts chose to defend it under the freedom of speech standards, right? There were limitations that were placed on the government by the system of checks and balances that we have. And so what you're expressing is, well, that worked then, but it can't possibly work now. And I, I think that's intellectually inconsistent, right? I mean, they, they, they absolutely could have decided, you know what, it is illegal and Phil Zimmerman's going to go to jail and we're going to start shoving bamboo up people's fingernails because that's just the way we roll, right? Well, they chose not to do that in direct contravention to the, uh, to the assertions that you've made that they don't care, right? Now, they may care less today, and I think that's a huge problem. But I don't think that we're anywhere close to the point that we can't actually rewind that and say, no, this is why we value it. Right, we've made terrible policy choices over the past 20 years. Absolutely terrible policy choices. The Patriot Act, you know, the dynamics around um, do we spy on our citizens, et cetera. 
the institution of student loans and the various forms of serfdom that exist against that, the non-dischargeability of various types of debt, right? We can highlight all the mistakes that were made, but choosing to abandon the system and as I said, effectively choose to decide in advance that we can't convince them to change the direction and the behavior, uh, to me, it feels very counterproductive. Well, that's a good point. I mean, I would disagree that, that the cypherpunks had no agency. Um, I, I think that they were a huge part of the success of the way encryption unfolded in our society. But you're right that it required 100% certain government officials and policymakers to fight for our rights. I think you're going to see the same thing today. Um, I, I, exactly repeating. I think there are justices. I think there are lobbying groups. I think there are senators. I think there are people who are very pro-Bitcoin and who will shepherd it through and who will fight for our rights. I mean, I, I, I think that it is already spread into the minds of many, many people in our government, um, and it's going to continue to do so. And I, I, I agree, I guess, with you in a sense that it, it, it can't just be like open source code. It has to be politicians and representatives and justices and lawyers who who help make that happen i guess the disagreement would be that i think i think they're going to all end up not all of them but i think a lot of them are going to end up supporting bitcoin and they're going to help us uh you know enshrine a new a new kind of framework of digital rights for for americans which which will be hugely beneficial versus other countries that failed to do so there's been fascinating uh for me to listen to uh and i just seriously on a personal note it's such a treat to get to talk to two people who disagree on something fundamental but can find areas of agreement and just have like a really interesting conversation so i hope uh you folks in the audience felt the same way as i did listening yeah to this, and look i i wish mike well and i'm gonna continue <laughs> listening to what he's doing and i really want him to succeed the audience just needs to know that like i think there's a decent chance that it doesn't work and I'm happy that we have an open source alternative. Yeah, and, and I, I would actually flip what you said, Michael, on its head and say that um, Alex and I actually agree very much at the deeply fundamental level. It's a question of the implementation that we're actually struggling with. Um, I, you know, There are many parts of what Alex sees as a vision that I certainly support. Unfortunately, I think that like gold in the 1930s, we will discover that we are not able to actually implement a Bitcoin standard and we are forced to behave very, very differently than the Bitcoin community would like us to. My fear is that the Bitcoin community has adopted a narrative that says that is because the U.S. government chooses to attack us instead of the U.S. government choosing for very valid reasons to behave in a certain way. Same thing happened in the 1930s, right? Executive uh, Act 6102, I believe it was, created conditions under which many people said some variant of you can't take my gold, you know, take pride out of my hand, you know, my cold dead hands sort of thing, right? It, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work, right? And so we can have the government that we would like to have if we work together towards it. Unfortunately, I think we lose a lot of really valuable allies when we rush off into libertarian fantasies. Well, and I'll, well, I'll end with the fact that Satoshi chose their birth date as April 15th, which is, of course, the date of 6102. Yeah. They studied yeah. this carefully and they, they believed they could make a system that, that would be resistant to that. And we'll do what we can to make sure that that's the case. But uh, hey, thanks so much for having us. It was really fun. I really enjoyed our chat. Ton of fun, guys. We'll have to do it again. I felt like I was part of the audience on this one. I just listened. <laughs> Thank <laughs> which you. Which is great. Uh, okay. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Take care. Take care. Take care.